Well, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. So last week, Jonathan was up here, and uh, basically his main point that he talked about was trusting in God wholly, trusting in God with your whole life. And we're going to be able to see that continue as we go into the chapter 6 and chapter 7 of the book of Acts. So let's begin with 6.1. But as the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. The Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers, saying that their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. So what we have going on at the beginning of chapter 6 is this internal conflict that's building up within the church between two different groups that are stated right here. So let's look at the first one. We have Greek-speaking believers. Now, a Greek-speaking believer is considered a Hellenist, or a Greek-speaking Jew is considered a Hellenist. So basically what a Hellenist is, is a Jew who is born into the Greek culture. They were either born into the Greek culture or they were a proselyte, proselyte meaning a convert. So they were raised in the Greek culture, converted to Judaism, or they grew up as a Jew in the Greek culture. So this conflict is between the Hebrew-speaking Jews and these Greek-speaking Jews. So we have these two different, cult, these two different uh, Jews that have cultural differences, which is creating this bias that we'll see here in a sec. And so basically, a Greek speak, the difference in the culture is basically has to do with the strictness with which they follow the law. There's also potentially a language barrier here. So Greek speaking versus Hebrew speaking. So basically, the conflict that's rising up is that the Hellenists are claiming neglect of their widows. So they're not being taken care of. So this became such a distraction and such a conflict that it, it, the apostles basically had to step in and take over, as we'll see in chapter 2. So the 12 called a meeting of all of the believers. They said, we apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God, not running a food program. So yeah, so basically the apostles had to get away from teaching the word of God and they had to step in and run this food program. It became such a distraction that they couldn't do what they were called to do. So they had to come up with a solution. Verse three, and so brothers select seven men who are well-respected and are full of the spirit and wisdom. We will give them this responsibility. Then we apostles can spend our time in prayer and teaching the word. So what's the solution? They're going to select seven men to step in to run this food program so that these Hellenistic widows are no longer neglected and that everybody is taken care of. So they're going to select seven men. What are they going to look for in these seven men? There's two qualities listed here. At first glance, it might look like three, but there's actually two. We have well-respected and we have full of the spirit and wisdom, which is just one. So basically the first one, well-respected, that is what we call more of a communal quality. So it's kind of, if you think about it, it's more on kind of like a horizontal plane. So it's more peer-to-peer. -peer. You want someone who's kind, who's reputable, who's trustworthy, caring for others, peer-to-peer, kind of horizontal. Then we look at full of the spirit and wisdom. That's more vertical. That has to do with their relationship with God. And what it means by wisdom here, which comes from the spirit, has to do with living. It's living a life well. So basically, it's taking that relationship of God and working it out and living it out. So basically, the two things that they're looking for in these men is a reputable, reputable man who is seen in a good light from peer to peer, 
and one that has a strong relationship with God and is living it out. So everyone liked this idea, and they chose the following. Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parnamis, and Nicholas of Antioch, an earlier convert to the Jewish faith. These seven were presented to the apostles who prayed for them as they laid their hands on them. Okay, so looking at the seven names here, what can we determine about these men? Well, they're all Greek names. So what we know based on that is these are Greek-speaking believers. And what did we just say those were? Hellenists. These are Hellenists. So they're basically choosing seven Hellenists to serve Hellenists. So that is no longer going to create this cultural difference or language barrier and create this bias that is neglecting the widows. So it's the perfect solution. But why, as we look at these seven names, why does Luke set one of them apart? In this case, Stephen. Why does he set Stephen apart in the text? It's for a reason. It's not happenstance. So basically, as we see through chapters 6 and 7, the focal point of these chapters is going to be on Stephen. And we're going to see God use him in amazing ways and fulfill his purposes. And take note, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. So if we just jump right to the next session, section, the first sentence, Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power. So we say he is a man full of faith, he's full of grace, and he's full of power. So basically, these three characteristics are something that are, are three things that are provided by the Spirit. It is not, these are not self-manufactured qualities. There is nothing that Stephen brings to the table. Stephen does not, Stephen cannot create these qualities on his own. Faith, grace, and power. These are strictly a gift from the Holy Spirit. Stephen might as well be sitting in this room right now because none of us can bring anything to the table. We are not any different than Stephen. It is by the Holy Spirit that Stephen is given this faith, this grace, and this power. It is only through the Holy Spirit, and by that is the reason that he was chosen. The fact that he's a Hellenist, yes, that is ideal um, because of cultural difference and stuff like that. But the fact he is chosen is truly because he is full of the Holy Spirit. It's God's sovereignty in this choosing of the seven men, and we're going to see that play out. It results from a relationship with with God. It's that vertical relationship that we talked about. He has a strong relationship with God, which is why he's ultimately chosen to do this. It is due to the Spirit, not himself. So let's continue reading. Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed amazing miracles and signs among the people. So remember that, performed amazing miracles and signs among the people. But one day, some men from the synagogue of freed slaves, as it was called, started to debate with him. So the synagogue of freed slaves. Basically, a freed slave is just a Roman slave that was set free. Simple as that. And we see the second conflict that's coming up. It's the debate. So he's debating with others here in this synagogue. Who were they? They were Jews from Cyrene, Alexandria, Cilicia, and the province of Asia. So they're all foreigners. So basically, here we have a Hellenist who grew up in Greek culture, is debating with foreigners who are proselyte Jews, like I said, converts, so they converted to Judaism. Who better to debate with these foreigners than Stephen? 
a foreigner himself, grew up in the Greek culture. It's ideal. None of them, meaning the foreigners here, could stand against the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen spoke. So here we have this debate, and they can't, they can't stand up to him. Like, he's, they can't stand up to the wisdom that is coming out of him by the spirit. So what do they do? Verse 11, so they persuaded some men to lie about Stephen, saying, we heard him blasphemy Moses and even God. This roused the people, the elders, and the teachers of religious law. So they arrested Stephen and brought him before the high council. So basically, when it says the high council, this is the high council of Jewish leaders. These are the high priests and the chop Jewish scholars and teachers of the day. So that is who Stephen is going in front of. It's the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is the same council that plotted to kill Jesus. So that's basically who's he, who he's going up in front of. These lying witnesses said this man is always speaking against the holy temple and against the law of Moses. We have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy the temple and change the customs Moses handed down to us. At this point, everyone in the high council stared at Stephen because his face became as bright as an angel's. Okay, so what has Stephen really been found guilty of? Here we have these lying witnesses bringing accusations against him, but why or what exactly was he found guilty of? Why did they arrest him and bring him in front of the council? He performed signs and wonders. Remember, it said he performed miracles. He performed signs and wonders. Basically, this can be healing the lame, healing the sick. Um, it's basically any miracle. And basically, it, uh, yeah, it's signs and wonders. So it's, it doesn't say specifically what he's doing, but he's doing something great. And he's preaching the new covenant and the gospel. So basically, the new covenant, what he's talking about, is basically when Christ came, gave up his authority to heaven, humbled himself, came down here, died on a cross, rose again, so that he can restore a relationship with us, and that by grace, through faith, we are saved in Christ. That is basically what he's doing. And along with that, he is performing signs and wonders. The gospel, same thing. He's talking about Christ's gift of forgiveness. So that is what he's been found guilty of. But that begs the question, wasn't he appointed to serve the Hellenists, those neglected widows? So why in the world is a guy who was appointed to do that standing, performing sign and wonders, and preaching the gospel? Well, Jesus commanded it. Matthew 28, 19 through 20, what we know is the Great Commission. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So why does this command apply to Stephen? He wasn't there when Jesus gave it. He wasn't part of the 12 disciples that Jesus was talking to when he gave this command. So why in the world does this command apply to a guy like Stephen? Let's take a look. 2 Corinthians 5, 19 through 20. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. 
and he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. All right, so there's two bolded phrases in here that we're going to focus on. The first says, he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So what is reconciliation? Reconciliation is defined as restoring a relationship. So basically what it is saying is the wonderful message is the gospel. Christ came down, died, rose, restored a relationship with us. So that is the gospel. And because of that, look at the next word, so. So is because as a result, as a result of getting this wonderful message of reconciliation, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors here on earth. God is making his appeal through us. That us is all inclusive. It is for every single person in this room. It is all inclusive. It is for everybody who is found in Christ. So basically, many of us in this room have been blessed being a father, a husband, a brother, a friend. We have certain jobs. We've been given certain skills, certain qualities in order to carry out certain things. We've been gifted with these jobs and pointed to these jobs, however you want to phrase it. But ultimately, all of that is secondary. This is your primary calling. This is it. God is making his appeal through us. That great commission, that command is your primary calling in life. You are commanded to spread the love of Christ. You are commanded to preach the gospel to those who do not know Christ. And God is making his appeal through us. It is all inclusive. So go and make disciples. That is the command. So then it brings up the question, do you and I take this seriously? Do we? Do we see it as optional? Do we see it as non-applicable? So about two years ago, I, uh, it was around Christmas time two years ago. I think it might have been Christmas Eve two years ago. And um, my cousin, she lives in London. Um, she does not believe in Christ. Um, she came into town, and she was there, and I was sitting. And I, get, I got to share with her what I was doing at the time. And at the time, I was doing the post-college residency here at Christ Chapel. And as I was talking about it, one thing led to another, and we started talking about Christ, and we started talking about his love and the gospel. And I got to share that with her. And we decided that we would get together um, back um, when she came back into town, which I think was maybe a few months later she had to come back into town for something. But um, so I got to sit and have coffee with her for about two hours, and I gave her a book, one of Timothy Keller's books, Making Sense of God. Um, great book. Um, and, you know, I got to sit there and talk to her. I got to talk to her about the love of Christ. I got to talk to her about, you know, certain situations that she's been in. I got to hopefully speak into her life. I remember leaving that coffee appointment not thinking I did like a great job. But, you know, I got to be there and I had a conversation with her. And then I didn't get to see her until this past Christmas when she came back into town. And I remember sitting at dinner and because before that, she had, she had texted me, and she had sent me a picture of the book saying, hey, I'm going to start reading this book. And uh, so I was like, great. And I didn't really follow up too much, which I should have. But anyways, 
back to this past Christmas, and uh, we went to dinner, and I didn't bring it up at all. It crossed my mind. I thought about it. I remember praying beforehand, but I didn't bring it up at all. Why? Because I was fearful of how she might see me. I wanted to be in her good graces. I didn't want to be too pushy, what have you. But I chose not to bring it up. And it would have been as simple as like, hey, how's that book going? Or hey, did you end up starting that book or something? And that just leads to the conversation. It just builds and builds and builds. But I chose not to bring it up. I didn't take this command seriously at the time. Whoa, there we go. I didn't take it seriously enough. But guess, Stephen didn't. Stephen knew this command. He took it seriously. That's why we saw him. Even though he was appointed to serve the widows, we saw him going out and preaching the gospel. We saw him doing signs and wonders. We saw him sharing the love of Christ. Why? Because he was commanded to do it, and he knew it applied to him. It didn't just apply to apostles. It applied to Stephen, and he knew that, just like it applies to us in here. So chapter 7. So basically, here we have Stephen's been arrested. He's been brought before the high council, the Sanhedrin, and the high priest asked Stephen a question. Are these accusations true? So... Let's recall these accusations that were brought against them by the lying witnesses. We have blasphemy, Moses, and God. So again, these were Jews that brought these accusations against them. So blasphemy, Moses, and God. God and Moses. When we hear God and Moses, we think of the law. God, the creator of law, gave us the law by, or gave the law to the people through Moses. Um, the law is incredibly sacred to the Jewish tradition, Jewish faith. So they're accusing him of blaspheming that, which maybe he was saying saved by grace through faith. When we talked about that, the new covenant, bringing in the new covenant, you were saved by grace through faith in Christ. Speaks against the temple. So we have God the king, we have law, which is incredibly sacred, and now we have the temple. The temple represented favor with God. It also represented their land here in Israel. So God, the law, and the temple are incredibly sacred to the Jews. So basically... They're accusing him of basically kind of attacking their customs, their traditions, their faith. So Jesus would destroy the temple, talking of his second coming, when he comes back, the future kingdom, threatened their way of life. It makes me think of John 14, 6, when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So that in and of itself, because the Jews did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah, threatened their way of life. Their sal the salvation and opportunity to get to know God changed. And that's what Stephen was talking about. So those are the accusations. Now, let's get into Stephen's reply. 7-2. This was Stephen's reply. Brothers and fathers, listen to me. Our glorious God appeared to our ancestor Abraham in Mesopotamia before he settled in Haran. God told him, leave your native land and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. So Abraham left the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran until his father died. Then God brought him here to the land where you now live. But God gave him no inheritance here, not even one square foot of land. God did promise, however, that eventually the whole land would belong to Abraham and his descendants, even though he had no children yet. 
God also told him that his descendants would live in a foreign land, Egypt, where they would be oppressed as slaves for 400 years. But I will punish the nation that enslaves you, God said. And in the end, they will come out and worship me here in this place. Okay. So what is Stephen doing here? What exactly is Stephen talking about? He's brought, these accusations have been brought against him, and here he's talking about Abraham and the enslavement of the people in Egypt. So what exactly is Stephen doing? Again, think about this. Why? So he's a Hellenistic Jew, and he's before the Sanhedrin, the high Jewish council. And it looks like what he's doing in the reply and what he is doing is he's giving a history lesson of the nation of Israel. So here is a Hellenistic Jew coming before the Jewish scholars and teachers of the day, giving them a history lesson on their own history, which they know very, very well. So to them, that can come across as kind of a slap in the face. You have this Greek-speaking believer, Greek-speaking Jew, who converted Christianity, coming before the Jewish High Council and giving them a history lesson on their own history. So what's the history lesson? What does Stephen bring up? He brings up Abraham, their great patriarch. So basically, so what else does he say? He said, never got to live in the land. So Abraham never got to live in the land. Their great patriarch, the father of their nation, Abraham. So he never got to live in the land, but what did that, that didn't keep Abraham from having faith in God. His focus was still on the future promises of God. That's what kept his faith. He, he was steadfast. He may not have got to see that promise lived out, but he still focused on that. That kept his faith. He brought up Joseph, the one who protected them in Egypt. He also said that he's sold into slavery by his own brothers. So Joseph was deceived by his brothers, sold into slavery, went to Egypt. He was the one protect. God used him to protect Israel. But at the same time, what happened at the end of Joseph's life? He knew the future promise of God. He knew the kingdom that was to come. So what did he do? He had, after he passed, he, had, he told them that after he passed, move his bones back to the land. His focus was still on the future promises of God. Moses, the one who delivered them from Egypt. What else happened to Moses that Stephen brought up? He was rejected by his own people. But what kept Moses' faith? He was still focused on the future promise of God. And we'll see here in a minute. Um, he actually uh, brings up when Moses talked about the coming Messiah. Moses was focused on the future promise of God. David, their great king and ruler over Israel, who they hold in very high esteem. What else does Stephen bring up about him? He was denied his wish to build a temple for God. He was denied. He wanted to build a God, temple for God, but he was denied that wish. Did that deter his faith? No. He stayed faithful to God, even though he was denied that wish. He was focused on the future promise of God. He was focused on the future, the promise that the Messiah would come from his lineage. So these four men were all focused on the future promises of God. So, Stephen's running through this history. He's giving this history lesson of Israel. He's bringing up these great patriarchs. So what is his whole point here? His whole point is the work of God. His whole point is God working through these men, working through the nation of Israel, working through them to something bigger, better, and greater. 
the promise that is to come. The history lesson is not about the patriarchs. It's not about Abraham. It's not about Joseph. It's not about Moses. It's not about David, which is probably what the Jewish high council was hearing. It is about God. It is about God fulfilling his promises through the nation of Israel. It's about God using these men to fulfill his promises and do his work. So, like I mentioned a second ago, verse 37, Moses himself told the people of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. He blatantly tells them, God, Moses said, God will raise up for you a prophet. Prophet being capitalized. Prophet referring to the Messiah. Prophet referring to Jesus. He's saying that Jesus, God is going to raise up Jesus from among your own people to be your Messiah, to be your Savior. That is the future promise of God. That is what he's saying. He is preaching the gospel through this history lesson. Moses was with our ancestors, the assembly of God's people in the wilderness, when the angel spoke to him at Mount Sinai. And there Moses received life-giving words to pass on to us. Okay, so how did they react to this? But our ancestors refused to listen to Moses. So here Moses is blatantly telling them that the promised Messiah is coming from our own people. Jesus is coming. This is the promise of God. And what did the people do? They covered their ears. They didn't want to listen. They refused to listen. They rejected Moses. They rejected him and wanted to return to Egypt, the place they had just been enslaved. They wanted to go back to. They didn't want to listen to the promise of God. They wanted to go back to Egypt where they were slaves. They told Aaron, make us some gods who can lead us, for we don't know what has become of this Moses who brought us out of Egypt. So they made an idol shaped like a calf, and they sacrificed to it and celebrated over this thing that they had made. Then God turned away from them and abandoned them to serve the stars of the heaven as their gods. Okay, so they rejected Moses. We see it right here. He spoke of the promise, and they rejected him. But what did they really do? Did they really just reject Moses? No, they rejected God. God was using Moses, just like he did the other patriarchs, to fulfill his purpose and to fulfill his promises. And they rejected God. He blatantly spoke of the coming Messiah, and they rejected him. They rejected the promise of God. They rejected Jesus. So... He runs through this history lesson, basically talking all about God, not about the patriarchs, which is probably what the Jewish council was really focused on, because they, you know, they refused to listen. But here is the conclusion um, to Stephen's history lesson, and this is more of an accusation. You stubborn people, you are heathen at heart and deaf to the truth. So again, here's this Hellenist Jew standing in front of the Sanhedrin, the same council that plotted to kill Jesus. And here he is, probably pointing his finger at them, calling them stubborn people who are heathen at heart and deaf to the truth. All Stephen's doing here is speaking the truth, but he's calling them out. So why exactly is he reacting this way after running through the history lesson? Basically what Stephen is doing is he's turning the accusations against them turning the accusations that were brought against him, against them. So basically, he's saying that the blasphemy of Moses and God and the temple, all of that is actually what they're doing. 
It's not what Stephen's doing. He's saying that they have a heart problem. They can't see God's work. They can't see God fulfilling the promises, and they can't see the Messiah. They have a heart problem. He's turning it on them, and that's what he's doing right here. He's calling them stubborn people who are heathen at heart and deaf to the truth of the promise. Must you forever resist the Holy Spirit? That's what your ancestors did, and so do you. So he's saying, they just like, as he showed throughout the history, just like your ancestors, you are refusing to listen. You are rejecting God. It is this continual, he's showing this continual rejection and resistance to God and his promises throughout the history of Israel. And he's saying, y'all do it too. Name one prophet your ancestors didn't persecute. They even killed the ones who predicted the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah whom you betrayed and murdered. How would you react to that? If you were on that Jewish council, and here's this Hellenist Jew, converted to Christianity, who's speaking of the gospel, who's speaking of the Messiah, and basically is accusing you of what you're accusing him of, and then you just told him they betrayed their beloved Messiah and they murdered him, how would you react? You'd probably get frustrated, probably pretty angry. He closes, you deliberately disobeyed God's law even though you received it from the hands of the angels. So here's their reaction. The Jewish leaders were infuriated by Stephen's accusation and they shook their fists at him in rage. Now listen, listen to this. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, this entire time, He's been full of the Holy Spirit, gazed steadily into heaven and saw the glory of God. And he saw Jesus standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. And he told them, the council, look, I see the heavens opened and the son of man standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. So what did they do? Then they put their hands over their ears and began shouting. They're doing exactly what he said they were just doing. They're rejecting God yet again. They're refusing to listen, just like their ancestors, just like they did with Jesus. Here, they still will not listen to it. They still will not listen to God. They still won't listen. So they rush at him and dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. His accusers took off their coats and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now Saul as many of you know, is Paul, who we will touch on later. And it's going to be really cool to see God's sovereign hand working through this entire part of history, through the book of Acts, to see how everything just comes together. So we'll touch on Saul next week. But 59, as they stoned him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He fell to his knees shouting, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. And with that, he died. Stephen was killed for telling the truth. He was killed for coming in front of a council and talking about Jesus, speaking of God's promises. And he was killed for it. He died. So what do we do with all this? 
what does it have to do with us? So, we see Stephen get arrested, brought before the council, have his discourse, reply to the accusations, call them out for having a heart problem. They were enraged, so they martyred him. They killed him. He was the first martyr. He had been saved by God. He had been called by God. He had been used by God. He spoke truth on behalf of God. And he died a martyr for God. For those who are in Christ, they have been saved by God. They have been called by God. They have been used by God. Spoke truth on behalf of God. And they ultimately will be persecuted. So is this what God has in store for you and me? So three words. First is calling. We share the same calling as that of Stephen. Just like we saw in the Great Commission, we are called to go and make disciples. God is making his appeal through us by the Holy Spirit. Stephen understood that. It wasn't just for the apostles. It's not just for pastors. It's for everybody. That us is all-inclusive. It is for every single person in this room. We are called, we are commanded as our primary purpose here to spread the love of Christ and to share the good news of the gospel with others. And why wouldn't we do that? If we see the way that has changed our lives, if we know the way it's changed our lives, this amazing treasure that is Christ, why would we not want to share that with others? We are commanded to, and God, like 2 Corinthians 5 said, is making his appeal through us. Cost. We face many of the same risks. Now we know living in the United States of America, we probably will not die for our faith. It probably will not happen. But we will face suffering. We will be persecuted. We do have fears. Whether it's, you know, being made fun of, losing a reputation, potentially losing a job, losing friends, what have you. Um, there's definitely fears. Um, I remember back when I came to know Christ when I was 19 years old, um, it was the spring, and then I remember going back to my friends, and they could tell there was something different about me. Just the way I, I lived my life at that point after that. There was something different about me. And I remember them looking at me and telling me that they don't like the new me. They wanted the old me back. Now, many of those, a couple of those friends have you know, actually stayed close friends. But I got rejected, not because of who I was, but because of who Christ was. And now Christ was in me, and they rejected him, and they pushed me away. Now, I definitely failed to speak the love of Christ at that point, but they knew something was different about me, and I faced rejection. But without that, I would not be standing where I am today. Without that, God would not be able to use that for his glory. God would not, thinking about through the last nine years of my life, without that, everything that brought me to this point would not have happened. 
So there is a cost. We face many of the same risks. But control, God is in control. We have the exact same sovereign God orchestrating the events of this world and the events of our lives that was doing the same thing for Stephen, that was doing the same thing for Abraham, for Moses, for David. It's the same God. It's the same Holy Spirit that lived in Stephen that gave him the faith, the grace, and the power to stand in front of that council and say what he did and speak the truth of the coming Messiah or of Jesus, who they betrayed and murdered. It's the same Holy Spirit that gives us power. We are not capable of doing anything anything like this on our own. It is only by the Spirit and our reliance upon the Spirit that we can share the good news of Christ. And that should take a huge load off your shoulders. You should not feel the burden of that because it is on God to make his appeal through us. He has just chosen to use us to do that. So we need to do what we have been called to do and leave the outcome up to God. We have to trust wholly in God, just like we talked about last week. Trust in God with your whole life and trust in his sovereignty, knowing that he is working everything for good. We have to trust in the sovereignty of God. Um, I definitely think Romans 8 is a great chapter to go look at. Um, When it talks about the Holy Spirit, it talks about the love of Christ. It talks about how the suffering does not compare to the glory of the future kingdom to come. If you definitely want to look more into this, which I definitely think you should, I would go check out and read Romans 8. So calling, cost, and control. We need to trust in God's sovereignty and understand that we're commanded to share the good news of Christ and his love by relying on the Holy Spirit. And that is our primary calling in life, no matter what the cost is, because the glory of God is so much greater and that future promise that we need to hold on to. So here are your questions. Would you agree that your primary calling is the same as that of Stephen? The Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19 through 20. If not, why not? If yes, then do you live like it? And then it kind of builds into the second one. If we share the same calling as that of Stephen, what keeps us from living like it? What stands in the way in your life? And then three. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus prayed in the garden, not my will but yours be done. How would this prayer apply to what we studied this morning? And would you be willing to pray it? Let's pray. Father, our Lord, we just thank you so much for this morning. We thank you so much for the opportunity to dive into your word. Um, We just ask that our discussion is incredibly fruitful around our tables, um, that you encourage us when you need to, and you convict us um, where you need to, Lord. And I just lift everyone up um, who is in this room this morning, and a special blessing on them. And I just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.